Heavenly Father, we pray that your, might, your word might dwell in us and, uh, and bear much fruit uh, to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Today we're beginning a, just a short three-week series to help us think about what it means uh, to be a part of a local church, a body, and how we're called to build uh, it up by, by serving. If you're visiting with us today, I, I pray that actually uh, the words here um, in, two, in 1 Corinthians 12 um, might be helpful for you as, as you go back to your own churches um, and, and, and act, seek to act uh, based on what you have, have heard. But help us think about this, this whole area. We're going to dive into 1 Corinthians 12 and uh, 13 and uh, 14 over the next couple of weeks. So I need to begin by providing a little bit of context. Uh, 1 Corinthians, as most of you know, is a letter written by Paul to the church in Corinth that he himself had planted, actually. Uh, He was the founding pastor. And unlike some of the other churches that he had established, he uh, stayed on at this church for a year and a half. And even after he left, uh, he kept in touch with them and uh, they with him. And so this letter goes into some detail about what was going on in the life of, of their church. And by the time we come to uh, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, we know a bunch of things about, about this group of people. For instance, uh, we know that they were mostly Gentiles. That is, they weren't Jewish. And yet they were keenly interested in spiritual, uh, spiritual realities, what we might think of as, as the more supernatural uh, dimensions of the Christian's life uh, or the church's gathering. What was the evidence of the presence and the power of God's Holy Spirit in a person? Right? That was the sort of question that really preoccupied uh, this church in Corinth. And we also know that they were inclined to view people and the world in very hierarchical terms. So they lived in a very stratified uh, society and they brought this tenancy with them into the life of the church. And so, for example, uh, they tended to uh, rank Christians, rank Christians according to the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And this chapter, 1 Corinthians 12, really addresses both those things, okay? So it addresses their interest in spiritual realities and their spiritual snobbishness. And he begins in verse 1 there, now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now, it's not always worth doing this, but it is worth noting here that Gifts of the Spirit, it's a reasonable translation, but actually it's a bit of a guess uh, because Greek, in the Greek, it's a little less specific. Literally, it is now about spiritual matters or spiritual realities, right? They had been pagans who were now coming to terms with what it meant to be a Christian, someone in whom God was active, What did all that mean? And so this is really uh, from Paul. This is is Spirituality 101. Now everyone, I'm guessing, has has an intuitive sense of uh, what it means to be spiritual or um, what spirituality looks like. 
uh, if we uh, polled the mountain, um, uh, we would get a, a range of different responses. Perhaps it would be someone who is particularly mindful. You think that person's really spiritual? Or, or someone who is particularly joyful? Or someone who is just really in tune with themselves? Right? The, 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 the mountain is just preoccupied with these things. There are spiritual and well-being expos up here. There are spiritual counsellors and spiritual teachers and spiritual healers and spiritual readers. But Paul wants to clarify now the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. So even, how would you complete the sentence? How would you complete this sentence? No one can except by the Holy Spirit. No one can something except by the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul insists, actually, it's this. No one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. The evidence of the presence and power of God's Holy Spirit in a believer's life is the exaltation, the confession that Jesus is Lord. He's actually correcting here um, their belief that actually it was speaking in tongues or it was, it was prophesying that somehow was, this, was the evidence, the evidence, the signs of being spiritual. No, he says the ultimate gauge of the Spirit's activity is the exaltation of Jesus as Lord. And whatever takes away from that, even if they are legitimate expressions of the Spirit, begins to move away from Christ and to a more pagan fascination with spiritual activity as an, end in this, as an end in itself. And as their pastor, Paul wants them to understand that their desire for something else or something more as evidence of the Holy Spirit is mistaken. And their love of ranking Christians according to the Holy Spirit's manifestation in their lives is harmful. For behind them, all stands the one and the same spirit. No one believer is more or less spiritual than, than another. There are no first or second class seats in the church. It's another way of thinking about it. And actually, the diminishing of some gifts over others diminishes the work of God. Because, because we read this, verses 4 to 6, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit distributes them. Different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Different kinds of working, but in all of them and everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, if this is true of you and I, then this ought to shift and shape the way it is that we think about one another, the ways we see one another. For a start, it does away with all the petty ranking of others, but it also ought to rein in all our private rantings about others. So think about it, right? That fellow believer whom you were frustrated with, for whatever reason, is someone in whom the Holy Spirit lives and is at work. Now this is, this is critical for me as a pastor, um, 
Even pastors, perhaps, perhaps especially pastors, attempted to become impatient or even demoralised. When will people really engage with what's going on around here? When will that family begin to commit and invest? When will that, when will that couple begin to get their priorities in order? When is that person going to be willing to step up and lead? But if I stop just thinking of them as people who just really need to get their act together and instead think of them as people in whom God, God's Holy Spirit lives and is at work, and I know this because they acknowledge Jesus as Lord, it means I don't lose patience. In theory. In theory. And it means I don't give up on them. It also means that I don't confuse my role in their life with God's role in their life. So just think about it. How would it change your attitude if you thought of that fellow believer who you are particularly frustrated with at the moment as someone in whom God's Holy Spirit lives and is at work? Well, our private rantings may instead become private prayers. That God may may, may well be at work in that person. That they may live as if Jesus truly is uh, is Lord. How might this perspective dissolve your exasperation with others? Or even your exasperation with me? (laughs) Yes, there are different kinds of, of gifts. But in all of us and in everyone, it is the same God at work. And he says, now to each one, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Now, this is the, the, the hinge that the rest of the chapter uh, swings on. These things, these, these gifts are given for the building up of the church, not primarily for the benefit of the individual Christian, whether it be wise counsel or clear understanding or simple trust or healing of the sick, miraculous acts, proclamation, spiritual discernment, speaking in tongues, interpreting tongues. His point is that all these are the work of one and the same spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. No one is giftless. No one is giftless. But there are some mixed feelings about this in the church in Corinth. And so he addresses the two different perspectives in the church. He begins by addressing those who look around and say to themselves, I don't belong. I don't belong. And his message to them is the body is not made up of one part, but of many. He writes, now if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, you would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, you would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. Now, there are those in, uh, in churches uh, who desire to be something other than what they are in the body, and that can be really harmful, but that's not exactly what he's talking about here. His point is that there are many parts to the body, and God has carefully arranged each part of it right where he uh, wanted it. And so it is with the church. 
To those who look around and say, I don't belong, he says, sure you do. Sure you do. In fact, they need you. And he then addresses those who who felt superior, who looked around and said of others, I don't need you. And his message to them is that there are many parts, but one body. He says, look, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Appearances can be deceiving, Paul says. And so those who looked around and said of others, I don't need you, he says, sure you do. They complete you. They complete you. In a body, every part is dependent on every other part. The parts we mention, the parts we don't. The parts we see, the parts we don't see. And he makes his, he makes his big point here in um, chapter 12, verse uh, 27. He says, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And just note that his argument is not based on what we do, but upon what God has already done. We need each other, but the way we know we need each other is not because we all fit nicely together, right? Someone walking in these doors for the first time is not exactly going to look around and and think, yeah, these guys are normal. (laughs) These guys, sorry, no offence. These guys have really got their act together. No one's thinking that. No, the way we know we need one another is because in his wisdom, he has brought us together. That's the way we know we need, it, need one another. Picture the classic scene, right, where kids are electing, elect captains and then they, they choose their teams from a lineup of kids. Now, who do they choose first? They choose their friends first and then strongest to weakest. And inevitably, one poor kid is left. He's bringing up all sorts of memories for me. (laughs) But he says, that is not what is happening here. That's not what's happening here. We don't choose the team. God does. If you are on the team, God has selected you to be on it. If you're here, God wants you to be here. That is how we know we need one another. Yes, he's chosen each and every member for a reason, but not because we're wise or influential or of noble birth. Paul has aimed and he has hit at the very heart of their spiritual snobbishness. Now, can I say, as your pastor, I do not detect the same attitude here at TMPC. Yeah. I did not detect an attitude of spiritual snobbishness. What I do detect, however, is an attitude of spiritual apathy. Where we still say of others, I don't need you. But it's not out of a superiority complex just because we really don't really see why it is we need each other in the first place. And it's the same attitude that's behind those who look around and say, 
you don't need me. It's not necessarily because you believe you have nothing to contribute, although some of you may genuinely feel that way and hopefully you're starting to see that that isn't the case, but rather not knowing how or even why you should contribute. But either way, the symptoms are the same. It leads to disconnection and disengagement, particularly when it comes to serving. Now, there's a, there may be a whole bunch of reasons for this. It could be that the pathway to serve isn't, isn't quite clear enough. Or perhaps I've inadvertently created some, some roadblocks. But my job as a pastor is to equip the saints for works of service. If I end up doing everything, I fail at my job. <laughs> so part of it could be on me. However, part of it could also be on you too. In that you've actually, you've refused really to engage in not regularly attending or when you do sort of appearing and disappearing. Now, I plan to address some things from my end. But if that is you, then you need to hear that God has chosen to place you among us for our common good. And so the question is not, do I belong? The question is, how do I belong? The question is not, do they need me? But how do they need me? If God has chosen you to place you here, in this local church, then you ought not to deprive us of what God has given you to contribute. I'm aware that it's probably three different groups of uh, believers in this room, regulars here at TMPC. One, those of you who may feel run off your feet, right? You are serving more often than not. Second group, those of you who are sitting back and for whatever reason... And there are some legitimate reasons. You're not serving at the moment. And uh, lastly, those of you who are just on the edge of your seats and you just can't wait to get involved. But this series is not about becoming busy. That's not, that's not what this series is about. Doing anything and everything. It's about working together. You know, it's, it's estimated... Uh, this is broadly speaking, that 20% of people in our churches do 80% of the ministry. Have you heard that before? It's not too far off um, what we have here at TNBC at the moment. Imagine what God might do if we could, under him, see the other 80% activated. Some have described the church as a sleeping giant There's far more that we can do uh, together than we are presently doing. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that every Christian ought to participate informally, right, in love and in service of one another. We We need to show up. We need to engage. We need to connect. We need to encourage. We need to love. We need to pray, et cetera. Not everyone needs a job um, as such. However, if we are to see church grow, and we, we have been growing, if we're to see church grow and flourish, We must also increase the number of people who are not only serving informally, but also prioritises formal participation in the life 
of the church. And as we grow, uh, we're going to need to provide clearer pathways for people to serve and better support for those people who are already serving. So I've done a bit of a stock take uh, of all the formal and informal ministry needs and opportunities here at uh, TMPC, ways to serve uh, in the gathering and also uh, outside of the gathering. And from next week, we're going to uh, put some of these needs and opportunities before you and ask that you prayerfully consider serving. See, we just have to... We have to fight against our consumeristic tendencies. We just must. Right? Only what coming when it suits you or when you do come, avoiding fellowship, bypassing the new person at church to go catch up with your friend, tuning out of the sermon because it just doesn't feel relevant to you, feeling a bit disgruntled because the music isn't really to your taste. Or perhaps it's never thinking to ask, well, what can I do? How, how can I help? The church is not a service provider, right? It's, it's, not, it's not what we're on about. We come not to be served, but to serve. And we do so for the common good. It's going to help build community here. And it's going to help reach the community. Uh, for those of you who have been around for a little while now, you will have heard of our vision statement before. I'm going to read it out again for the sake of those who haven't. <clears throat> so here is our vision at TMPC. Our vision under God is to see the gospel overflow in our lives and at TMPC to reach the mountain as a, and our region as it cascades down to our surrounds by making more disciples and more mature disciples who know and love Jesus as their hope and treasure. So, over the next three years, we are praying and planning that each one of us has a family member, friend or colleague become a Christian. Now, that is a big vision. And how on earth are we going to get there? It's going to take the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to convict our family members and our friends and our colleagues about sin and righteousness and judgment. And it's going to take a work of God among us and in us as each one, as each part does its, does its work. And friends, it's not just going to be for their good. It's going to be for your good too. Serving is also for your good. It'll help you grow, becoming more Christ-like, who did not come to be served, <clears throat> but to serve. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, not, you're not necessarily sure what God intends for your contribution to be. But that's the purpose of this series, right? This short series to encourage you to consider your part in the body, so that we might together make more disciples and make more mature disciples. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your son Jesus came to serve and not be served. May you transform us and so that we become more Christ-like. Father, we thank you that <clears throat> you have brought us together and that is the way we know we need one another. And so I pray that each of us might consider prayerfully 
our part to play in building up the body and do so cheerfully, joyfully, willingly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.